Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show. Today's guest is Lori Scorzelli, a peer support specialist with a diverse background of lived experience and professional education. Her areas of specialty and passion include alcohol use recovery, harm reduction, depression, anxiety, complex trauma, eating disorder, and chronic illness. She was diagnosed likely to have BPD in her adolescence, but did not receive a formal BPD diagnosis until earlier this year, now in her 30s. And on this podcast, we discuss how she navigates living with chronic illness and BPD. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show, where we discuss tips, strategies, struggles, triumphs, and success stories related to borderline personality disorder. Here is your host, Faye Green. What's it like to live with BPD and also um, chronic illness? I think I have an easier time now. Actually, one of the things that I, I say to myself a lot is like, thank goodness that the timeline of my life has gone the way it's gone. Because there are times in my life where I, I don't think I'd be navigating as well as I am now. But I feel pretty well equipped to handle a lot of the symptoms of my BPD at this point. So whereas at other times, like I could see being sick being like such a wildly dysregulating experience. And it definitely is sometimes, but it isn't 24-7, which is, I'm really thankful for that. But some of the things that have been super challenging is one thing I've identified that's really hard for me is taking like two sets of conflicting information and deciding what to do with that. I can't do it. Um, Like I have to... (laughs) I don't have a lot of intuition. I don't have a gut feeling. So when, you know, I've been ill for so long without a lot of answers. So like the the nature of my chronic illness is really vague. I've just been struggling for years and kind of passed around between a lot of specialists. And so like I'll end up, you know, with a really nice provider who like I maybe really like as a person, but I'm not so sure about their advice. And then on the other hand, like a really not so nice provider who's not treating me super well, but feels like really confident that they they know what's going on and how to treat me. And then I don't know what to do. I'm like, who do I pick? Like they're they're telling me different things. Um, so that's one thing that's really hard is like figuring out what the next step is, um, because I think it's I think it's really great that most providers now are operating from this point of like patient directed care where they want the patient to make a lot of choices. I can't really make those choices, (laughs) you know, Um, but also I I don't really want them to make it on behalf of me either. It's a lot of this like push and pull and like nothing ever really feels right about the path forward. That's really hard. And then the other really big, the thing that is pretty like dysregulating is navigating the disappointment. So one of the things that keeps me really hopeful is I'll be like, oh, I'm going to a new provider and they're going to have the answer, right? Or like... um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to have the treatment for me and I'm going to start feeling better. And then the appointment goes terribly. Maybe they like are just like really discounting of my pain or my experience. And then I like I just like fully can't handle that at all. Um, And actually, I've had to seek a lot of support from friends and family uh, because I I live in New Hampshire, right? We're talking about how like I live in the middle of nowhere. Doctors, sometimes I'm driving like an hour and a half. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So like to get to like the specialist, right? Like my primary care is a half hour. 
Um, and that's like the baseline, right? If my primary care is a half hour, if I want to go to someone really knowledgeable in something kind of niche, I'm going to go to Boston, which is an hour and a half from my house or up to there's another hospital in Dartmouth, which is also like an hour and a half. So now I am super dysregulated, sobbing beside myself, like can't handle how I'm feeling. And I have to drive myself an hour and a half, which is just not safe. So my dad has been so wonderful and has been driving me to a lot of these appointments, which is really sweet of him. But it is upsetting to like feel like I've lost like a little bit of autonomy where I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I can't even take myself to the doctor anymore. Right. But I think it's a necessary support because I've had some like pretty big like crisis-y type episodes after going to a doctor's appointment that didn't go well for me. Mm -hmm. And how do you not give up? Like how do you keep on pushing through all this with all the disappointment? So that's gotten hard because what I was doing was like being so hopeful about the next appointment, right? Mm -hmm. And recently I got some of like the strangest advice and it makes so much sense. But my therapist and I were, were talking about this after one of my like bigger episodes where I was like pretty inconsolable after the doctor. And she said, I don't want you to take this advice the wrong way or misuse it. But she said, and I would never tell someone this usually, but like, I think maybe you're being a little too hopeful. And I said, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Like, we're supposed to be hopeful to push us forward. And she said, I think that you need to find something else to like set your sights on and be like hopeful about. Because when you're hoping so much for like the answer to be coming and then the answer doesn't come, you're so crushed that it's unmanageable how crushed you are. So I've had to keep it more in the day uh, and, and be more mindful and hopeful about like what I'm going to do today. And also it's a lot of that acceptance piece too, right? Of like, I don't really know what this is going to bring, but this is where we're at. And I'm lucky, like I have, a, I have a pretty good life these days. Like I have a husband who I really enjoy being with. I have a couple of really solid friendships. Um, things with my family are better than they have been in the past. Uh, so like, it it's not it's not a terrible situation to accept, right? It's not the ideal situation. It's not what I really want for myself long term. I always want more, but. I'm lucky that I'm not having to accept something that feels totally unacceptable to me. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been living with a chronic illness? It's a little hard to tell because when I look back, I think there was a lot of things that I said, like, that's not a big deal. And like, maybe we're mm -hmm. kind of the first signs of some of this stuff. Um, but it, in the sense that I've been str like struggling to the extent I am today, it's been like sometime like late 2020, early 2021, probably, that I've been like really actively seeking, like, we got to figure out what's going on, like things are crumbling around me. Um, but I started having like some GI issues, like all the way back in like 2011. And then mm. it would kind of be like, okay, things are bad. And then things get better. And we feel like, oh, well, we solved the problem, we figured out what's wrong. And then like something gets bad again, we're like, well, this is kind of new and weird. Let's figure out what that is. Um, but it's been pretty consistently at the level that it's been or like kind of declining and coming back to that level for like over two years now. Um, not to give you no, <laughs> I don't want to go against your therapist things or to, you know, get your hopes high. But um, I have a friend who also has been going through a lot and they couldn't figure out what it was. She was in extreme pain. Sometimes she couldn't get out of bed for days. 
Um, and I think it started in about 2021. She needs a lot of surgeries, but they couldn't figure out still where the pain was coming from. And um, they recently, and she also, so she lives in Brooklyn, which means she has access to a lot of different doctors. So she was going to a ton of them. Um, and everyone was giving her different suggestions, you know, and saying that it's different things. And it seems like she finally figured it out. Like one doctor figured it out. And the past few weeks, she's been in a lot less pain. Now her, she still needs surgeries and stuff. It's, she's not out of the woods. But in the last couple of weeks, she has been in a lot less pain. I, I'm, I'm afraid to your therapist <laughs> might, you know, <laughs> be mad at me, but there's hope. No, I and I agree. That's one of like the conversation that I ended up having with her is like it's not that there's no hope. It's um how how do we use hope to our advantage? Like it, mm -hmm. to move me forward instead of in the way that I was using it where it just kept knocking me down. Where like I just was put so like we just put it started putting it on some more external things that weren't the doctor, right? Like I I needed to look forward to things that weren't related to medical appointments. And that kind of like balanced it out a little bit. But one thing, another thing that was really, really difficult about this whole process is for over a year, nobody took this seriously as like a medical physical health condition, actually for longer than that. Because I mean, I think that some of the things that I started experiencing as far back as like 2017, 2018, were pretty mild expressions of like what's now like really exacerbated in my life. And I did go to doctors about it. And, you know, my primary care at the time, she, she really told me like, well, of course you're in pain. Like you have a history of depression and people who have depression are more likely to feel discomfort and pain. And I'm like, cool, but that's not, I mean, I've, had a history of depression since I was like nine years old. I know what that is and what that feels like. And like, this is new and different. And that's something that's been really hard to explain to people. Um, because a lot of times with like, especially neurological disorders, um, one of the like symptoms, one of the criteria for diagnosing you will be like new and changes in mood and mental behaviors, right? But since I have like a very long history of like mood disorders, sort of related illness, uh, mm -hmm. they don't count like that as a, a symptom. So one of the thing that like really came up in like 2021 and like started really changing the trajectory for me is that I was having this incredible time thinking like my processor just like turned off. And I like couldn't like formulate my emails anymore. I realized like, oh, I've read the same web page like five times in a row and I don't even know what it says. And then I started getting very depressed. And so kind of my diagnosis became burnout. And I was like, but it, this isn't, it's not depression. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it to all of you. Like, I know what it feels like to be depressed. And this is a new thing. This is very different. Uh, it feels different in my brain and in my body. And they'll be like, well, but you have a history of depression. So it's just, your depression is just changing. I'm like, well, I, I can. And so that's, that's one of the things that even on a day to day, sometimes I do struggle with is like, you know, is this mental health or is this physical health? Because some of them do feel really similar, like the fatigue, the fatigue that I feel when I feel depressed and the fatigue that I feel when whatever's going on is flaring up in my body are pretty similar. The solution's very different, though. 
So like when I'm feeling fatigued because of depression, I have to get up, move, go out, like try to do opposite action and like get myself into motion to break through it. If I do that uh, in response to a fatigue, that's actually because my body's like fatigued in a physical way. Actually, everything just gets worse. I don't break through anything. I just mm -hmm. like make the situation more problematic because what I needed was rest. Um, so that's one. Of, that's been one of my bigger challenges is figuring out like, is this the type of tired where I need to rest to recover, or is this the type of tired where, you know, if I I'm going to get worse if I lay in bed because I'm I'm really just struggling with a low mood right now. And how long have you been struggling like with mood? Uh you know, depression or BPD? Yeah. Um, so as I had a really big challenge as a like young child, probably like starting around 10 or 11, um, I started experiencing some pretty significant anger. And actually it was probably earlier than that, but I really remember it around that age. And I was I was pretty well engaged in therapy as a kid all the way up until like I graduated high school. And at that time, uh, like I had this diagnosis that was like a non-diagnosis of borderline personality traits because mm -hmm. I guess they don't really diagnose kids because a lot of the traits are pretty inherent in kids. Um, and then, then I started to really struggle with alcohol. I, I used a lot of alcohol. And then when I enter recovery from that, uh, I kind of describe it as like a light switch where I just mm -hmm. felt like momentarily cured of like everything. <laughs> like I just felt like such a wildly different person. Um, but I was still, you know, I'm, I'm newly sober. I'm in a new relationship. I have a whole bunch of new friends. Like I had what I thought were like pretty typical challenges for like, given the situation I was in. And I started going back to therapy and I shared with them about like my childhood and my adolescence and how I had gotten this like label. And like, I got some literal eye rolls from therapists about like, well, every kid shows traits of borderline personality disorder and really like diminished it, uh, really wanted to treat things related to anxiety, depression, complex PTSD, never really talk about BPD ever again. Um, and at the time, like I, I read the criteria for like diagnosing that and I was like, huh, I guess this doesn't really describe my experience. Like I remember reading it in high school and saying like, man, this is me to a T. Mm -hmm. And now I'm reading it uh, as an adult and I'm saying, oh, this doesn't really align. So maybe they're all right. Maybe this was just some kind of like teen thing that I was just like on a trajectory and, and we corrected. And then about a year ago, I started having some interpersonal relationship issues uh and simultaneously a friend had reached out and said that they were considering that maybe they had bpd and so it prompted me to look up the criteria again and i'm reading through it and i'm thinking to myself i struggle with all of these things what is the difference and i think the difference is that i wasn't presently actively in a crisis anymore and so this mm -hmm. looked super different for me um, cause I would say I was pretty actively in a crisis for years from like age 11 to like 25. It just every day felt like a crisis. 
And so how it shows up now is just like so different uh, because I have more coping strategies. My environment is so different and much less triggering than it was for that period of time. Uh, Even when I'm triggered, I have way more support and understanding than I ever did. And I also think that some of like the expression of the traits and symptoms for me has like changed a little bit and they're not necessarily like healthier, but uh, I would say they're less disruptive. So it's, it's less obvious that this is what the challenge is. Um, so I think it's, it's really gone through a lot of phases in my life. Uh, and now I'm at a place where like, it's still a thing I, I have to navigate every single day, but it's not disrupting everything. Mm-hmm. And I want to just follow up on doctors, whether it was your chronic illness, BPD, doctors just like dismissing you. I, for me, I, I was very upset because for years, for the first, I became suicidal, I think started starting at the age of 18, maybe like actively. <laughs> um, and it, I, I was, it lasted for 12 years, um, lasted until I left New York. That's one of the few things, good things of leaving Brooklyn was, so I've seen psychiatrists and um, it was always anxiety, a major depression disorder. And then I, um, do research on um, the symptoms of major depression disorder, and then it's not me. But if I would bring it up, they said it was always, but you're suicidal. That must be you're depressed. And I'm like, but no, I'm not. Like these symptoms just don't add up. And I, I would be so upset with myself because I knew so many people who were depressed, and I knew that I'm not struggling in the way that they are struggling. I'm struggling in a whole different way. And for so many years, I thought that some things, I'm the only person in the world that struggles this way. And there's something wrong with me that like my depression looks so different than anything in the DSM. And once, well, once I got the diagnosis at first, because I was diagnosed with a lot of other things too, that didn't make any sense. And so once I got the diagnosis, I thought it's just another label thrown my way. So at first I just brushed it off. And then, you know, I kept on saying, no, I don't have it. I don't have it. But at one point, this therapist was really smart how she did. She kept bringing it up, but in a very nice way. At one point, I decided, you know what, let me Google what it is. And that's when I literally broke down crying for hours because I was like, this is it. Like, this is exactly what I'm going through. This is what I'm suffering from. And why for almost 10 years that I've been in what I call the system, psychiatrists, therapists and all, no one, no one figured it out. They just kept on slapping the label anxiety, depression, and sometimes there were other weird labels that which is like, you know, when I looked at it, it was so clear. It was, this is it. Like it started making sense. So, and, and with physical symptoms too, when doctors just dismiss you, oh, it's in your head, it's this, is that, it can be so frustrating because you as a person know, you know that what you're feeling is real. And, and when the doctor dismisses it, it's just, it's frustrating and it's a problem. And another thing is when doctors leave it up to you, and I know that I also believe that a big problem one of those things that I'm a little bit upset was that at times doctors push, pushed medications on me without telling me what the side effects were going to be without even, uh, I now I've learned that a lot of the medications, especially mood stabilizers, they could screw around with your sugar levels. Um, so if you're pre- predisposed to diabetes and stuff, you got to be very careful, which that screwed up my health a lot. And no one even asked or checked with my physical health. I did have some, but very few check with my physical health to see if the medications would screw me up physically. Um, and now doctors are like, 
you know, the opposite. They were like, okay, so what do you want? And I'm like, I've tried almost all of them. What should I want? <laughs> you know? So um, uh, that is another struggle. And, and I don't know if there is um, a good answer to what doctors should be doing, because either one could be ba bad for a person and either one could be good for a person, right? But yes, I have no idea where I'm going with this tangent. <laughs> hey there, warriors. Before we dive into our episode today, I wanted to take a moment to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor, HopeForBPD.com. If you've been a part of this journey, you know that I don't just bring you stories and expert advice. I also am on the lookout for resources that can make your journey with BPD more manageable and more hopeful. Hope for BPD is that resource, a beacon of hope. Whether you're personally affected by BPD or you're supporting a loved one through their journey, this platform is here to assist you in every step of the way. Hope for BPD provides confidential and compassionate treatment consultation, information and research about evidence-based treatments, ongoing solution-focused and non-judgmental support for individuals with BPD and family members, and so much more. BPD isn't something you have to face alone or in the dark. So visit their website at hopeforbpd.com to learn more about their services and find that glimmer of hope you've been looking for. Because remember, no matter how tough it gets, there's always hope. And now back to our show. No, you actually said a, a few things that uh, I have some responses to. Um, yeah, I think it's really frustrating that in a lot of people's minds, even providers' minds, like suicidality equals depression. I don't think they're the same at all. I think they can be. But something that I wasn't even super aware of until the last couple of years, I think for, for me personally, that the suicidality I've experienced, because I, I have like passive chronic suicidality on a daily basis. It's really hard to even disclose that to any provider because, mm -hmm. you know, if they gave me the, what is it? Like, like the Columbia suicide scale, like on any given day, like it could result mm -hmm. in me being admitted based on those answers. But it, there's more nuance to that conversation. 100%. Um, and I think for me, uh, the the suicidality that I experience is much more like an, an intrusive, obsessive thought that then makes me feel distressed. So my almost my whole life, um, I'd been being told, like, you are depressed and that's why you feel suicidal. And I think it's the opposite for me. I think I have uh, distressing suicidal thoughts that I don't want to have that then make me feel depressed because that's not a thing I want to think about. And I didn't really put that together until I actually ended up on a medication for ADHD uh, mm -hmm. because of the big fatigue I've been experiencing. And then additionally, I've been like having increasing cognitive challenges as a result of whatever's going on. Like I have said, like, it's really hard for me to focus and read an email. Um, so I end up on this ADHD medication, which like eliminated like 70% of like the intrusive thoughts I was having. And then I didn't feel sad anymore. And I was like, well, this we've been treating this backwards. All the antidepressants I've been on that were doing nothing. And I was like as depressed, if not more on them. Like it's because we weren't treating like the intrusive thought type feeling. And I know that's not like the most common, uh, you know, effect of an ADHD medication. That's an, another thing you said is I've I think my list of psychiatric medications is up to like 30 at this point that I've tried. 
um, because I have really weird reactions to all medications, even like physical health medications, whether it's a, a side effect that's disruptive or just like not really the result you would expect to have from a med. So when I was on that medication, I experienced like a reduction in intrusive thoughts. Like, and then when I did still have an intrusive thought, I was less likely to obsess about it, which is like a cycle I get into, right? Like, so I'll have like, I'll have a thought, I'm sitting at my computer and I'll think, oh, I wish I was on fire right now, which doesn't make any sense. And it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I will like obsessively think it. Now I can't stop thinking it because I thought it. And then that becomes really distressing. <laughs> and so it's like this really like, it's like a train of events that just like gets really spirally and out of hand. Um, so once I like kind of learned that, I was like, I don't actually think most of what I've been struggling with has been depression. I think that, you know, when I was in these really big crisis episodes as a kid and a young adult, like that was distressing and exhausting. And that then presents like depression, right? Because now you have uh, all this like backlash to deal with and it's really overwhelming and uh, tiring. Uh, I think a lot of like me not getting out of bed uh, looked like depression because like I wouldn't get up and face the day. But like, who wants to get up and face the day after you've just sabotaged three of your friendships yesterday? Like nobody wants to get up and deal with that. And so it's not that I didn't feel depressed. It's that I think that treating depression wasn't going to solve the problem because it's almost like the depression was a symptom, not the root cause. Yeah. I think that's another important thing is sometimes doctors like to just slap you with medication you've tried five different ssris let's try the six but none of the ssris have worked or okay now we've tried six snris so let's try and sometimes it's easier to take a step back and say wait we've tried this we've tried this we've tried this it's not working maybe we're not addressing the problem correctly because like you said with your intrusive thoughts so for me being suicidal were two different two maybe Maybe they were interconnected. I don't know. But it was my life situation. I did not have a home. I did not have any support. I did not have friends. I was on my own trying to make my way in the world. And at times it was, you know, literally on the street. So, of course, I was suicidal. I mean, my, my I didn't see as much as I tried. I kept on, you know, going in a circle of like, again, no home, nowhere to sleep. Sometimes I didn't know where I'm going to sleep at night. On the other hand, sometimes I would be totally fine later, let's say, like, let's say next a year later, I'm, I'm with friends and I'd walk into a room and the first thing, especially if it was not like the first or second, it was a building. And I didn't mean to, and I wasn't depressed. I was in a good mood. I was happy, but my thought would just go to like, where's the window? Where could I jump from? I was happy. I was in a good mood. There was no depression. There was no sadness. It was just like, hey, wait, wait, just in case, like, where could I jump from? And that lasted for a couple of years until, I don't know, I just, instead of like berating myself and just trying to like go to all kind of therapists as to why I have this thought. I accepted it for as is, you know, I sometimes go, this is my thought. I'm not actively going to do it. I, I didn't think I'm active, actively going to do it. It was just a thought. I'm happy. Like I'm not sad at that point. And it just, you know, I guess my brain stopped thinking that after a couple of years, but what I'm trying to say is that two things, first of all, depression and suicide it could come together, but it not necessarily has to. Sometimes you're suicidal because, and sometimes you're depressed because of your life situation. You're in a tough place. I mean, of course you're depressed. And also, as far as meds, 
if you keep on trying the same things over and over again, it's not working. I mean, like you said, take a step back and maybe there is something else at the core of it. Maybe we're not addressing it correctly, you know? Anyways, like I said, I again, I'm going off on all of those tangents and have no idea where to go. But I had one question that I keep on, keeps on popping back in my head. So you said that you need something to stay hopeful for. Your therapist said that other than like finding something to treat the like chronic illness you need something else to stay hopeful for look forward to did you find that it's been difficult um so just go back a little bit to one of the things you said is like sometimes your situation is just depressing right and like it makes sense to feel depressed my situation for the last couple years has been pretty depressing it's been it's been hard to navigate um i tried for a really long time to work through it like, um, like employment wise, like to stay employed through what was going on. I took some breaks from work and then came back. And like, it was like, I had a little bit of rejuvenation and was able to keep, um, keep going for a little bit. And then I'd have to take a break again. And ultimately, now, now I don't work. So and of, of course, in like classic fashion of my life, things actually had gotten much, much better, uh, like 18 months ago. And I thought like, oh, we, we've cured it. Like it must have been burnout. And all of my rest has like really, really paid off. And so like we're going to we were in kind of like a, a temporary uh, situation with our housing. We're like, we can like move on from here to the next chapter of our life. And like right as we're like closing on our new house, I had this big flare up where I ended up in the hospital. We thought maybe I had a stroke. I like had all this numbness in my left side of my body and I was having all this slurred speech and like nothing has ever really like I got better, but like nothing went back to where we were right before that. So it's hard to feel hopeful when like I, I can't really drive myself a lot of places because of this concern of me being like too dysregulated while driving. There, there's also an issue of fatigue when I'm driving. Um, it, mm-hmm. You reminded me of it when you were talking about like being in a room and like noticing the window. Right. Um, because uh, if I'm I'm driving to work or somewhere anywhere and I'm really tired and I'm not super motivated to get there it's so it's so accessible to me to just be like I could just veer right off the road right now and that becomes really dangerous when it's so accessible and I think one of the reasons a lot of this like situational suicidality right like when I am really depressed or really dysregulated after a, a bad doctor's appointment um the the jumping to like truly feeling like because I think there's still somewhere in between, right? The the passive intrusive thought type of suicidality and the active plan. But there's somewhere mm-hmm. in between that I like get to. And I think I get there so easy because if every yep. day you're just thinking to yourself like, ah, I should kill myself, I should kill myself, whatever. Yep. Uh, it's really easy to make the next jump. Um, yep. Whereas a person who doesn't think that way might not jump there so quick, right? I can relate, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so like driving's kind of off the table unless like it's super super necessary and uh our finances aren't as great as they could be because I'm not working and it's like well the the idea was right plan some nice things to do for yourself and it's like well, you can't do anything nice for yourself in this society anymore like without quite a bit of money even just like I want to go bowling is like crazy expensive now so it's like well yeah. how do I be hopeful for any of this um 
But I had a pretty interesting experience a few months ago that I've been kind of clinging to where I was talking about in therapy that like, I felt like I was maybe doing myself a disservice identifying as like a quote sick person. And that Mm -hmm. maybe that I was identifying too strongly with being chronically ill. And this was like spiraling me and actually making me worse. But like, I didn't know what to do because we said I shouldn't be too hopeful. And like, if I'm accepting of being sick and that makes it worse and being hopeful makes it worse too, what do I do? Um, And I didn't feel like we really landed on like a great path forward. And what I ended up doing was like going on insight timer and finding this meditation. It was like cord cutting for chronic illness, which cord cutting is like uh, a practice of like you, it's basically like cutting the ties to something. So like you envision like quote the sick version of yourself and the healthy version of yourself and you cut the cord. And I did it the first time and I was like, that's all right. And then I did it the second time and I realized like the vision I was making myself as the quote sick person, like I didn't dislike it. There was actually like a lot of really cool things that I've developed in my personality and in my life over the last couple of years that I would not have without this experience and that I don't really want to go back to the way I was before. I would like to go back to a person who can like drive more freely. And like, you know, I used to run a lot. I really miss running. Uh, I would like to go back to some of the things I was able to do. But I don't want I had this very like grind lifestyle where like I was working in I ended up like pulling it back a little bit. But if we go back like before any of these things started happening, like I had a pretty high pressure, intense capitalist type of job. And I don't want that life anymore. Like, I like the life that I've cultivated, like, through learning more about the chronic illness community and the mental health community and all the self-compassion and the compassion for others that has come out of that. Like, I've had so much personal and mental growth. I don't want to cut that. I want to cut the cord with, like, the person who, like, struggles to walk around the flea market. That bums me out, right? But uh, I can kind of see how, like, the person I am doesn't exist without that experience. Um, and I've been I've been playing it a lot in my head, this idea of like two things can be true. Uh, it's really hard for me to grasp. I'm not good at it, but uh, I do try to remind myself, right? Like it, it can suck that I can't do the things I used to do. And it simultaneously can be great that I have been able to grow and develop in other ways. And what about hobbies? So- like it is expensive to go out. I mean, I know it myself. Um, and if there's a driving um, constraint, that makes it even more difficult. Anything that you could do at home? Yeah, there is, and it, it still kind of fluctuates, which is another thing that sometimes bums me out. That like I feel like, oh, I you know I made all these hobbies that are supposed to be more accessible to me, and some days I still can't even do those, and that's a bummer. Um, but I was singing a lot, especially during this period where um, it was like considered to be like a burnout related issue. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was trying something that uh, a couple of times people have suggested to me, but definitely in early uh, addiction recovery. And I like didn't know what I liked anymore. I said like, well, what did you like before? This happened right before you started drinking to excess. And I loved singing. 
Um, and I never really got back into it because like I said, I was doing this like really high pressure lifestyle. I didn't do a lot of hobbies. I did a lot of sleeping on the weekends because I was so stressed all week long. And so I, I started singing quite a bit that ended up falling off a little because it's actually like a pretty physical experience to be like, I was singing a lot of like Broadway stuff. And like, so belting that is a lot of physical work. But so I kind of do that a little more casually now, not as like, I had like a pretty rigid schedule before where I was doing voice lessons and I uh, did do like a little cabaret show. Um, and it was so much fun. I, I really loved it. And I think I really, um, I think that was an, another part of like my personal growth. Like I found like a little bit more of my voice and in my lessons, we, we talked a lot about like how the voice was coming out of the body. So I got a little more grounded in my, my body and what my body was doing. Um, and then when that became more challenging for me and I had like some more free time, I started crocheting a lot more, which was actually something I started during the pandemic. Uh, my roommate and I were like crocheting these really huge blankets all the time. We're just sitting around crocheting so much because also we were on tons of Zoom uh, recovery meetings because uh, oh. everything moved to Zoom. So we're we're in like Zoom trainings for work, Zoom recovery meetings. We can't go anywhere and we're just like crocheting these huge blankets. But I had this goal. I had seen people started making like the little stuffed animals. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I, I really want to be able to do that. And so last summer, I started learning how to do, I think it's called amigurumi. I think that's how you say it. I've actually never heard a person say the word. I've only <laughs> seen it written down. Um, but it's like crocheting the little stuffed animals. Um, <clears throat> and I've loved doing that. I have been having more and more joint pain in the last like six months or almost a year. So I can't always do it, which is like what I was saying, like kind of bums me out when I get like really passionate about something. And then I just feel like, ah, oh, it's been taken away from me. And then I like really quickly slide down to everything's been taken away from me. <laughs> That's how we like quickly get to that more yep. like crisis period. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been really liking that and basically just uh, funding my own hobby at this point. I've done a couple of craft shows that just go right back into making more stuff for and you know I don't know why I didn't put this together because like I'm just an adult who thinks like oh these stuffies are so cute but I did this very family-friendly craft show and like all of the people who bought stuff were small children and it was so cute yeah. I loved it so much like it just made me feel so happy yeah that's one of the things that I've been like pretty passionate about now that like and I did really well at that show too. It like really set me up to be able to do that one again. So I was like, you know, if, if this is like the only one I do all year, like that's, that's all I can capacity wise do because of the uh -huh. joint pain and stuff like that's fine. Cause it was just so cool. Like, and I also made, um, I had a whole bunch of pride beanies, like they were in all the different pride flags. And that was like another thing I hadn't considered is like, these were all kids that were like 13 to like 18 buying these hats. And that just made oh. me so happy too. And I was like, oh, these kids wearing their so cool. the pride hats and I made them like, it made me so happy. That is amazing. I always tell people, if you find something that you makes you happy and you're passionate about, don't let go of it. <laughs> Yeah. And I know that you have, you know, you can't always do it. But if you found, especially that you found like the little kids and the teens that want it. And if that brings you happiness, that's so good to hear. Um, mm. I'm so, I honestly, I haven't found, I don't know what my passion is. Um, 
I, I have no hobbies. When people ask me, what are your hobbies? It's like, I can't, cannot tell you my hobby is sleeping or eating because then I'll sound like a crazy person. So what am I supposed to tell you? Because I, <laughs> I have none. <laughs> I'm still trying to find it. Do you have any advice for people who are living with BPD and are chronically ill? Is there any anything you'd like to just share with them? Sure. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest things that has helped me is the the support system that I've developed. I mean, I, I do mm-hmm. think I was a little lucky that some of this stuff was already developing or in place like at the onset of when I really started to struggle. But I think I think something I hear all too often from like friends or people I work with is that they don't like their therapist. And I get mm-hmm. it because it sucks to start over with a new therapist, but it is so worth it when you find one that you like and that you feel like really understands the things you're going through and can support you. Because I think that's a pretty big turning point for me has been finding a therapist to work with who not only do I feel like understands the challenges that I have, but also um, that I feel comfortable like giving some pushback to. Because Oftentimes, I mean, I am a person who is not comfortable pushing back or hasn't historically been comfortable pushing back. And then when I do, it's like a really dysregulating experience where like I just feel terrible after I've done it. Um, and oftentimes in therapy, when when I have done it in the past, it's it's not met well. It's kind of met with like, well, I am the therapist. I am the yeah. expert. Like this is the way that I provide therapy. And therefore, if you don't, if this isn't working for you, like we can transition you to someone else kind of thing. And like, man, Mm -hmm. does that trigger my fear of abandonment? If my therapist is going to transfer me to somebody else. Um, The other challenge I've had sometimes is after like being in therapy for a while, I'll, I'll like share something that's like a little deeper and a little darker. And I can like see fear kind of wash over their face. And I'm like, cool, we're not the right people for each other because that was like not even the scariest of my thoughts and you are frightened by me. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it's worth it. I mean, my when I look at like my mental health history, like there's a lot of like bopping into a therapist for six sessions and like leaving and finding someone else and like, okay, maybe we made it six months, but we're on to someone else. And I've I've now been working with someone for like 18 months straight, which I think is like maybe the longest I've ever worked with someone continuously. Yeah. And it's made such a big difference. Like, and also to get to that point where I can have that type of consistency and someone who really knows me because it takes a while to get there. Like the first few months of therapy, like you're not really doing any work. You're just like trying to explain who you are (laughs) and how, how you exist in the world. So, and, and I mean, I say the same thing for doctors too is get second opinions, get third opinions, like really push back. And it's it's very hard because I most days do not have the energy to do the level of work I need to do for to advocate for myself. And that it's really frustrating because that's ended up being part of the reason why even like part-time work is too hard for me because I have too much work related to my illness right now to have any energy left for like employment work. Whereas if we could just like, lessen the work related to my illness, I could maybe have some employment. It's a very catch-22 bad situation. Yeah, if if you can, if you have that capacity to advocate and you don't feel like 
a doctor's getting you or a therapist's getting you, move on. And I think um, one other piece of information that's been really helpful for me is judging your providers more about their response to your feedback than what Mm -hmm. maybe they've done, right? So if if they've done something that doesn't sit right with you and you feel like, I don't really want to go back to that provider, rather than jumping there to take one extra step, give them the feedback and say, I I really didn't like how this thing went in our session. Mm. Um, And then, you know, if they're super defensive and say like, well, I'm the professional, like, you're right, that wasn't the person for you. But if they take it into consideration and say, you're right, like, I could have done better there, like, let's move forward in a different way. That might be actually an excellent provider. And you just you would have never known if you didn't give the feedback and hear them. Oh, I like that. That's tough to do, though. But it's so hard. It's so much work. But I've kind of found that like, once, once you can get over that hump and start to see it be beneficial and like have some really positive interactions, it becomes worth it. But it, it's hard in the beginning, when like the first two, three people, it goes poorly. And you're, you mm-hmm. say like, well, I should have just left yeah. them anyway. <laughs> um, but when you get the one person who responds to you, like with compassion and understanding, and then you're, you're, progress starts to shift and you get different care. You're like, man, I should have been doing this all along. How many providers could I have gotten better care from if I just advocated for myself? That's important. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it, Laurie. And absolutely. um... Thank you so much for joining us on today's BPD Bravery Show. If you've enjoyed it, then like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure to tune into our show every Monday and Friday. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD.